1861, a wild gambler and a drinker, a man by the name of Harry Morehouse, rushed into a revival meeting in Manchester, England, and he was looking for a fight. But instead, he got saved. Six years later, when the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody was preaching in Dublin, Morehouse came up and he told Moody that he would like to come to America and preach the gospel. Morehouse, or Moody looked at Morehouse and guessed him to be about 17 years old, even though he was much older than that. He didn't know if Morehouse could preach, and so Moody brushed him off. But after Moody got back to Chicago, he got a letter from Morehouse saying that he had landed in New York and he would come and preach. Moody wrote a cold reply saying that if he came west toward Chicago to call on him. A few, years, a few days later, Moody got a letter saying that Morehouse would be in Chicago the next Thursday. Now, Moody didn't know what to do with him, so he told his deacons, there's a man coming from England who wants to preach. I'm going to be gone Thursday and Friday. If you let him preach those days, I'll be back Saturday and take him off your hands. Now, incidentally, in those days when God was doing a great work, they held evangelistic meetings every night at the church. Well, after, on Saturday, Moody returned and he asked his wife how the young Englishman had gotten along. Did the people like him? She said, they liked him very much. Did you like him? Yes, she said, very much. He preached two sermons from John 3.16. I think you'll like him, but he preaches a little different than you do. How is that, Moody asked. Well, he tells sinners that God loves them, she replied. Well, Moody said... He's wrong. Moody went to hear him that night, determined that he would not like him. But that first night, as Moody preached once again from John 3.16 on great, God's great love for sinners, Moody's heart began to thaw out, and he could not hold back the tears. For seven straight nights, Moody pre or Morehouse preached to a crowded church on John 3.16. The final night, Morehouse concluded his sermon by saying, My friends, for a whole week I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor, stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up to heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say was, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. These sermons changed D.L. Moody's life. He said, I've never forgotten those nights. I have preached a different gospel since then. And I have more, had, had more power with God and with man since then. As for Harry Morehouse, later when he fell ill and at the age of 40 and was on his deathbed, he looked up and told his friends, if it were the Lord's will to raise me again, I would like to preach from the text, God so loved the world. Well, this morning in the book of Romans, we're not on John 3.16, but we're certainly on the John 3.16 of the book of Romans, which also tells us of God's great love for us. These verses in Romans chapter 5 are certainly one of the great, great passages of Scripture that the Lord has used over the centuries to communicate his great love for us in a way that sinners know that they are loved by God.
So please turn once again to Romans chapter 5, the 6th verse. Verse 6 of the 5th chapter of Romans again. Paul has just written that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And then to show us how amazing God's love is, he adds in verse 6 of this 5th chapter, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. To appreciate and to experience, to feel God's great love for us, we must first feel our own great need for a Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, In order to measure the love of God, you first have to go down before you can go up. You do not start on level and go up. We have to be brought up from a dungeon, from a horrible pit, and unless you know something of the measure of the depth, you'll only be measuring half the love of God. In other words, to appreciate and begin to appreciate and experience the greatness of God's love, we need to fully understand what our predicament was. We were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were God's enemies. I think of that scene in the movie Amazing Grace, the true story of William Wilberforce and John Newton bringing the, the slave trade to an end in, in England. And there's that scene where they quote some actual words from John Newton and the, the aged, blind pastor who had been a former slave trader, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He's speaking to William Wilberforce and John Newton, the man who had experienced the depths of sin and human depravity, as well as the heights of God's love, said this, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Why do we need the great Savior? Because we are great sinners. We greatly need the Savior because we're helpless, we're ungodly, we're sinners, we're enemies of God. So first of all, Paul wrote, while we were still helpless. Fallen human nature likes to think there's something within us that we can do to help ourselves, whatever it is. We have something we can do about it. Certainly we have some innate ability within us at least to reach out to God, don't we? But Paul has reminded us in his letter to the Romans that without Christ, while we were still helpless, while we had no strength, while we were impotent, while we were powerless, while we were totally unable to free ourselves from sin, from its power, from its presence, from its wages, while we were under the control of Satan, while we were headed for hell, while we had no power over death, while we were paralyzed by the fall, paralyzed by the effects of Adam's sin and the fall, we had no moral ability to do anything that pleased God, while we were enemies of God himself, hostile to God, what? Christ died for us. And not only were we helpless, we were ungodly. Look at the end of verse 6 again. Christ died for who? The ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. This is an important concept. What does it mean to be ungodly? We could paraphrase what it means to be ungodly this way. While we were the very opposite of God. While we were everything God, God isn't. 
When we talk about someone who lives a life patterned after God, we, we say he or she is a godly person. The Bible uses the word that way because that's so characteristic of God. But, but sin is in ungodly. Sin is the very opposite of God. Ungodliness in Scripture refers to those who don't know God, who don't pattern their life after God in any way. And the amazing reality of God's love is that it was exercised towards those whose life was absolutely repulsive to God. God is what? Holy, holy, holy. Holy to the third power. That's as holy as you can get in the Hebrew language. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or, or truth, truth, truth. He is, but he is holy, 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 and we are utterly unholy. Yet God loved the ungodly. Paul also says we were sinners. Now the issue between Morehouse and Moody was whether God loves sinners. Both fully knew that they were sinners themselves and were all sinners and they were called to preach the gospel to sinners because we all need to be saved because we're all sinners. They both preached the gospel and people were saved under both of their ministries, but Moody admitted that he became a much more effective as an evangelist when he understood God's love for sinners. Look at verse 8 of Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We saw this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All the Awana kids have learned it. For all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Remember that the word translated sin here means to miss the mark. It's an archery term, harmatia. It means to let the arrow fly, but it misses the mark. It misses the target. It doesn't go where it's intended to. The essence of sin is to fall short of the glory of God, to miss the mark, which is God's glory. The mark is God's glory, and on account of sin, we fall short. I used the illustration recently of going down to the pier in San Diego. I think those from San Diego missed that Sunday. I kind of remember you guys were gone that Sunday. You go down to the pier in San Diego... And the goal, the mark, is to run down the pier and jump and land in Hawaii. Okay? Some, like Olympic jumpers, they, they really train for this. <laughs> you know, they spend, I like the, that American ninja, whatever it is, I like it in the sense that these people give their whole lives, but you know, to this time in that show, nobody's ever made it to the top of Mount, whatever they call it. <laughs> you, know, you know, so all these people giving their whole lives and training, so these kind of guys, they, they have trained and trained and trained, and they go running down the pier, they go out 15, 20 feet or more, you know, and some of them do like we've seen in those old films where they make these flying machines and they, <laughs> they go running off and they just crash off the end. So, some people stumble all the way down the, the pier and then just kind of fall off the end. The point is we all miss the mark no matter how hard we try. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Without Christ, we did not live for his glory. We had no con concern or concept of his glory. Rather, we lived for ourselves and for our own glory. Are we there yet? Are we down at the bottom of the pit? Are we down at the place of helplessness yet? One more, and for this one, we have to drop down to verse 10, get a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Verse 10 of Romans chapter 5. 
For while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies. Most people, whether they're believers or not, do not consider God to be an enemy, right? Some people really talk to the, their, their good buddy upstairs. You know, he's not an enemy. He's, he's, he's my buddy. You know, we get along. You know, most people think they get along with God. Whether they really believe in him or have anything to do with him. Oh, yeah, I, yeah I, God, God's good with me. You know, I, I'm fine. But without Christ... They are in a condition of being hostile to God. Spiritually, without Christ, he uses a word here, they are enemy combatants against God. And we don't want to miss the other side of this. God is also hostile towards them. That's where we started this with Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that started this whole section. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. In unrighteousness. As ungodly sinners, we have incurred the wrath of God, which stands as a death sentence over us, which will be carried out in the day of judgment. Even if you don't have a problem with God as a sinner, he's got a problem with you. And his wrath is being poured out. He pours out his wrath against all unrighteousness, and ungodliness. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, Pastor, this is awful depressing at this point. I thought this was about love. <laughs> well, we'll see that it is about love. But, but doesn't this tear down a person's self-esteem? Aren't we supposed to help people feel good about themselves? You know, flip through the channels on a Sunday morning. There, there's feel-good religion all over the place. And, but the problem is, if you don't see the depths of sin from which God rescued you, you won't appreciate his great love. Christ didn't come to polish your self-esteem. Christ didn't come to help you feel good about yourself. He didn't come so that every Sunday or so you get a little bump in how you feel about your situation or, or a little lift that gets you through the week. He came to die for your sins and reconcile you to God. And if you don't see yourself as a helpless, ungodly sinner at enmity against God, then you're not going to see the need for a Savior. So in verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 5, Paul shows us that salvation is totally from God, totally from his great love for us. There was nothing in us that was lovable or that motivated God to send us the Savior. There's a somewhat shocking and graphic picture of this in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16. You don't need to turn to it right now, and don't turn to it later unless you've got a pretty strong stomach, Okay. I'm going to tone this down a little bit, but we still need to get something of the full effect of it. As God pictures Israel in the 16th chapter of Ezekiel, in our sinful, ungodly, helpless situations, we were like an unwanted newborn infant. An unwanted infant, an unwanted newborn that's thrown out into a field. The navel cord is uncut. Ezekiel says the baby is in its own blood, a piece of garbage about to die. Horrible picture, right? But here's how the rest of the picture plays out in the book of Ezekiel. God took us. He bathed us with water. 
He anointed us with oil. He wrapped us in fine garments. And we entered into covenant with God and became his beloved children. That is the salvation that stems from the love of God. A love that's far higher than any example of human love. God's gracious love for us is far higher than any example of human love. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 5. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might even dare to die. We've seen this just this last week again because of the, the violence in our culture. Stories of heroes are becoming everyday news, aren't they? A coach who stands between a shooter and the students. A firefighter who rushes into a burning, collapsing building. That's a special kind of love. It's a love that that is worth dying for. And the, the Apostle Paul makes an initial statement and then he qualifies it, perhaps for a righteous man, perhaps for a good man. And in some cases, a person may die for a good person. But who would offer to take the place of the scoundrel? Who would offer to take the place of the shooter? Answer, Jesus would. And Jesus did. In fact, Jesus died for only one kind of person, ungodly sinners. None of us deserved what Jesus in love did for us. And what did God do? This is what God did. God's gracious love for us sent Jesus Christ. Verse 8 again. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word translated demonstrates means to show, to prove, to establish, to render conspicuous, make it obvious. The cross of Jesus Christ is the glorious demonstration of God's love for us. The cross shows God's own love for us. Now, we would expect it to say that the cross shows the love of Jesus, the love Jesus has for us. And and we know that Jesus loved us. There's, There's no greater love that Jesus gave up his life for us. But notice that little three letter word own, O W N. It puts the emphasis on the love of the Father here. The Father's own love for us. In verse 5, Paul said that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And now he says, And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, demonstrating how much God loves us. Yes, and God's gracious love sent Christ at the right time. The right time, while we were yet sinners. At the right time. You know, in Galatians 4.4, referring to Christ coming into the world, Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time came, the perfect time, the fullness of time, the time of God's choosing and plan for the ages, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came into the world at just the right time in God's redemptive plan and purpose to die on the cross for the sins of the world But on the personal level, Jesus died for us at just the right time in that we were perishing. We would say, paraphrase, in the nick of time. In the nick of time. We had no hope. Ephesians 2.12 says that without Christ, 
We were without hope and without God in the world. That's the condition of most people in this world. John MacArthur explains, The vast magnanimous reality of this is really overwhelming. What condescending love. What pardoning grace. What astonishing truth. I mean, people won't even die for good people, let alone giving up their life for wicked ones. Who would do that? God would. While we were undesirable and worthless and helpless and impotent and enemies and hostile and haters of God and haters of Christ and rejecters of truth and proud and self-willed, and the best that could be said about us is our righteousness is filthy rags and our heart is desperately wicked, full of deceit. Now listen to this. We would have been doomed if God had not sent the Savior. In order to be saved, you must come to the end of trusting in yourself. Trusting in your good works. Why? So that you will see your hopeless, helpless condition. As Charles H. Spurgeon put it, you've got to stand before God convicted and condemned with the rope around your neck so that, when you, so that you will weep for joy when God at the right time sends Christ into your life as your Savior. When God at the right time sends Christ into your life as your Savior in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's gracious love sent Christ to die for us. The word die is prominent in these verses. It occurs in verse 6, twice in verse 7, and once again in verse 8. Since according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, Christ had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. He was our substitute, bearing the punishment that we deserved. He died, as Peter put it, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. You know, while Jesus is our great example of how to live, his example does not save us. While he is our great teacher, his teaching did not save us. His death as a substitute bore the awful penalty of God's justice Jesus alone can save us, and he does it through his death. Christ died for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. The bottom line is this. If we were helpless, ungodly sinners in need of Christ's death to save us, then salvation cannot in any sense be due to human merit, to our own works, to our own righteousness. These verses totally do away with any system of works-based salvation. We were helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies of God, and Christ did not come to help us save ourselves, to give us a little lift, to get us over the top. He did not come to save us because he saw some spark of potential in us. He didn't come to die for us because there was some inherent, inherent worth in his sight. He didn't come to die because we were such lovable creatures. <laughs> no, we were dirty, filthy creatures wallowing in our sin and filth. As Charles Hodge puts it, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, thank God, <laughs> but I added the thank God, but on the constancy of the love of God. And this, this is really the good news, isn't it? The good news. It means our hope in heaven is secure because it doesn't have anything to do with us. It doesn't have anything to do with me or what I do. Have you ever really thought about that? Why are we eternally secure in Christ? Because our security doesn't have anything to do with us. 
our entire eternal security, that whole issue as to whether a person can lose their salvation or not is settled right here in the book of Romans. You are not saved by anything you can do and you are not kept by anything you can or can't do. In fact, our eternal security is what? In spite of us. In spite of us. It has everything to do with God's gracious love for us while we were yet sinners. You know, if you're not saved or you don't know if you are saved, it's because you have not received the free gift that God offers. Maybe you're still trying to earn your way into heaven somehow, but if heaven is based on your works, you can never be sure of it because you never know if you've done enough. Enough. But instead, in God's loving gift of eternal life through Jesus, who died for us when we were yet sinners. Years ago, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth visited the United States. And at a question and answer session at Union Theological Seminary in Chicago, Dr. Barth was asked a question. A student asked him, Dr. Barth, in in all of your studies and in all that you have learned from Scripture and God's Word, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? The questioner probably expected some deep, incomprehensible answer, as if someone asked Einstein to explain his theory of relativity. Bart thought about the question for a while, and then he replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The book of Romans, as we have seen, is packed with deep, deep, and heavy theology. But the Apostle Paul wants us not only to know intellectually, but also to feel experientially the great love of God, as seen by the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would experience that even right now as we have in the last few minutes and looking into your word, that we would not only know that you love us in our heads, that we, we know that to be true in some intellectual sense, Father, but I pray that even right now, through what Jesus had done for us on the cross, that we would feel your love for us. We would know it in that sense of experiential. We would know that we are loved with an everlasting love. And Father, when we go through our lives this week, even as we face experiences where we might be tempted to doubt your love for us, your care for us, your tender mercies, your compassion, I pray that through your Holy Spirit that we would just be bathed in the warmth of your love. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.